0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a well known and respected senior underwriter with a career going back 40 years. Simon Bird, Group Executive Underwriter and Active Underwriter of Brit Insurance's Syndicate 2988, is someone who I'd heard of 30 years ago when I was a broker but is someone I only ended up meeting 29 years later. Regular listeners will have heard his wise contributions to the last two Monte Carlo State of Insurance and Reinsurance episodes. The rushed timetable of Monte Carlo made me wish that we could have a longer and more relaxed meeting to be able to have a far more detailed and nuanced conversation. And here it is. This is another vintage episode with someone who has spent a generation leading carriers through markets, variously benign, indifferent, soft hard and completely dislocated. Very few people can put today's market and the issues of our times into the kind of context that Simon can. But of course, Simon isn't some kind of museum piece or insurance and reinsurance historian. He's a hands-on underwriting leader who is very much in touch with the market. He's also great company, and his insights and thoughts on topics as far-ranging as AI to the structure of the syndicated insurance marketplace are highly original and valuable. And I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Simon, welcome back to the Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. The reason why I say welcome back is that you haven't had a whole episode to yourself. And I thought you've been on a couple of the Monte Carlo episodes. We've previously met down in Monte Carlo for the last two years. And I've always enjoyed those conversations so much that I wanted to get you back. This is now in late autumn. And I was looking at all the people I'd spoken to at Montecolo and I thought, who would I like to get back on the show and have a full episode, a full long conversation? Because I've always felt those half hour chit chats and 15 minutes sort of um, grabbed conversation in the corridor in Montecolo is not quite the same as sitting in a very nice office in the centre of London where, you know, it's more of a studio environment and have a proper chat. So thank you so much. Why don't we start off by you give me a bit of a view of where the market is at the moment.
1: Well, current view, and my sort of DNA is pretty much reinsurance rather than insurance. But yeah. of course, I'll talk happily about insurance and reinsurance as my role involves both. But from a reinsurance perspective, I would say, and I'll shamelessly use an expression you used a lot in your Monte Carlo podcast, namely that property, I would say, is firm and orderly. We are in that predictable, reasonably predictable space. Casualty a little less so. There's definitely consensus on cat, and not just in respect of US cat, but I'd say increasingly on worldwide ex US cat
0: as well. The consensus being it's got to go up somewhat. What about the context? Because you've seen a lot of markets. I was trying to get in touch with you to invite you on this podcast um, while you were at Baden Baden. I think you said it was your 30th or something like that. It was thirty. One yes. doesn't ask one's yes, one yeah. one's barden age, but that um, yes, you, you put it on the record and put it on but, the cycling shirt. Actually, yeah, as well. yes, that like, yeah. You go cycling up mountains while you're there as well, which is very brave of you. How do you put this market in context? Because certainly, in my experience, if I'd said, "Well, what is the wisdom of of the market cycles?" The hard market seems to last a lot less. That we have these, you know, long bumbling, slow, soft markets that get to a certain level and then suddenly spike up, and then they start to bumble down again. And the hard market lasts a very short time, but it can be quite dramatic. This time, we seem to have a hard market that is just goes on.
1: Yes, I, th- I think the vagaries of sort of hard and soft, high and low are, are much less pronounced than they were before. Firstly, it's a truism that after a hard market, there will inevitably be a softening. The natural law of capital and so forth comes what in. What goes
0: up must come down. And
1: gravity also, indeed. <laughs> I think... What's different now is, I think back to the hardening after 9-11, and that was dramatic, and it was dramatic at so many levels. Obviously, first and foremost, property, but the loss itself impacted so many classes of business, property, casualty, marine, and so forth, reinsurance, insurance. It prompted not just a natural reaction to that loss itself, but it catalyzed the whole market. So, run-of-the-mill casualty lines that had been languishing in the late 90s just got on the bandwagon of, this needs to change, this needs to improve, and so on. So, I mean, it's probably fair to say that probably even bloodstock rates went up after (laughs) 9-11 or something like that. Certainly, contingency did, because events got cancelled, you had the cancellation of flights and so forth. So, well, it was a tsunami of ripples. They went everywhere and quickly.
0: You're saying it's not quite like that? It's certainly
1: not quite like that. I mean, fast forward 20 years, and... I think there are different sort of economic rules out there now. I mean, a really good example would be the PA and workers' comp excess of loss market. When the Twin Towers came down, that market was eviscerated overnight because it was a crumbling edifice built on the back of naive capacity through MGAs and so forth. And overnight, there was no bodily injury cat market and reinsurance market. Prices went up by absolute multiples, and there was no limit almost to what was being charged. Today, when you have a more concentrated capital environment, fewer larger entities and so forth, the market's willingness to pay can be challenged, whereas before it had to buy and that was it. You've got massive rate increases. Today, the CFO is probably the guy who writes the check, not the class underwriter. And For that reason, if last year you paid one online and this year you're paying 15, and those sort of multiples occurred, particularly in the bodily injury cat space after 9-11, then your boss, your CEO or your CFO says, fine, write this business, but we're not buying reinsurance. We're just not going to pay those sort of usurious prices, if you like. So there's a bit of a sort of natural near Darwinian order that once you get above a certain level, you retain the risk, if you like, and so on.
0: yes, we'll we'll sell it at these prices, but we won't buy it.
1: Certainly. But then, going back to your earlier question, yes, many lines of business are in a good disciplined space. And if we're,
0: simply put, bumping along the top or just off the top, then we're in a very good place. And so, yes, what's different this time? Is Is it that discipline that we have a better understanding of what we should be charging for the risk? Have we got better? Without
1: doubt. I mean, of course, there were models back then, and the models now are much, much better. No model's perfect, and the models evolve all the time. But I think there is clear consensus on model pricing, particularly at higher attachment points, because the reliability of models, the higher you go, becomes greater. The proportion of non-modeled risk falls away quite quickly once you get above a certain level, because attritional cats, mudslides, and things which have hitherto in the past have caused retrocessional claims, I've
0: been aware of. Absolutely, that won't be the case today. So this is far more of a rational, less sort of emotional market, a market that perhaps, say, 21, 22 years ago, it was running slightly scared, saying, well, we don't really know what price to charge, so we're going to charge 15 times more and see if that works, if we have appetite. Uh, but we won't buy any retro on that or reinsurance on that. Now, you'd say it's much more logical. It's much more calculated. Yes, but that's
1: a function of fewer buyers, fewer sellers, more capital, more intellect and tools and so forth. And yes, there's a sort of a natural order. The rules are there in as much as if we're well capitalized, we can keep much more. Whereas back in the day, you think back around 2000, 2001, there were hundreds more syndicates so on, obviously still a massive independent names capacity a tradition of buying in a certain way. So you bought X over Y and your business plan wasn't that agile. So particularly when the loss happens quite close to the anniversary date of your cover, but we're committed to buying on this basis. QED, we buy at any price sort of thing. Well, those behavioral requirements don't exist. If the any price is absurd, you go away and revisit your plan. You don't just pay the ransom note, if you like.
0: (laughs) You pull out of that class if you really have to. Yes. Or you literally, as you so alluded what, what earlier, can we, do net?
1: we, we yeah. will just write a, a controlled aggregate on a net basis and see how it goes, rather than, yes, write a good book, but then lose all your margin because you've paid it away to the reinsurer.
0: Yeah. One little bit, I wonder if you think that this reminded me of that hard market post 9-11. I was reading in a, it was a Gallagher specialty US property, so property insurance report. There was a really interesting quote. They said, Underwriters couldn't price themselves out of getting a firm order. They tried to, but they end up getting a firm order anyway. Is that a, even a small segment that would remind you of, of things that happened you know, 20 plus years ago?
2: Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and Broking Platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross written premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Eventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary. A platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated which is why our synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one. Very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it, and creates a meaningful value along the way, a Synergy Partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi.eventomgroup.com at today.
1: Well, I remember quoting a US Life Company's cat cover, and I believe it was one of the first ones that included NBC, because that was a you know nuclear, biological, chemical terror. That went out the windows as a possible coverage, because everyone was so frightened after that. And I quoted two layers, both double-digit rate online, at a level that would have required hundreds of fatalities to that portfolio. So it was only responding to a really massive loss. A plane crash could never have impacted it. And I was nervous. I had no idea of what, notwithstanding, the probability was absurdly low, and you realize that. But the environment was so sort of febrile at the time, it was a net risk, but it was part of the time when you could take at least economically calculated and measured risks and, and we you were felt writing a limited and aggregate. And you felt
0: brave doing it. And the market was there to be made, if you like, sort of thing. Yes. So does this remind you of back then in, for example, parts of US property, presumably the most cat-exposed parts of US property commercial? Are we in that kind of environment? I think possibly for certain areas. I like the
1: reference about you can't price yourself out of something. You shouldn't offer a price if you don't want to honour it. Well, yes, I'm speculating now, but there must be some US, Caribbean and Mexican or whatever coastal property that you can virtually name your price on when you just look at Otis and the damage it did in a very narrow spot as well. But Boy, the photographs are dramatic.
0: And with no warning, really. Yes, so
1: that sort of high-value coastal property, you can probably charge, yes, a hell of a lot of money.
0: I suppose that's always been the case, hasn't it? Certainly it felt like it's sort of Caribbean property, beachfront property, ones that have lots of nice pools and bars and things and discos down by the beach. You know, the market has it in for them. Obviously, they're naturally exposed, so there's not much you can do about it.
1: Inevitably. I think the market's probably refined its offering more mm-hmm. intelligently now. So a lot of those peripheral exposures, if you like, are when no longer covered. Disco,
0: yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, yes. I remember learning about that a lot. So we're in this very good market. Bumping along the top is a really good phrase of yours, with some very crunchy points. How does it affect your own strategy as an underwriter? Obviously, as a buyer and seller of reinsurance trying to construct a balanced portfolio. How is it affecting you? Does it make you change the way you think about risk? Certainly. I mean, in the
1: context of my specific responsibility at Britain, Syndicate 2988, we have deliberately de-emphasized exposure to critical cat because it's something that investors have been, shall we say, rather circumspect about. That's to put it mildly. And the cost of reinsuring it has become, at times, when you're a comparatively small capital entity, prohibitively expensive. So whilst the gross portfolio looks good, you can't run a gross portfolio when you're on a relatively small capital base. You have to buy reinsurance. So going back to earlier observations, it's either right at net or not at all. And in 2988, we've dialed back US
0: critical cat almost completely. So where are you happiest? Presumably, you're happiest in some of that critical cat because you can get these prices that, you know, that you quote any price and you'll probably get an order. Yes, well... But then you don't feel happy because then you see it in your portfolio now sitting in your new chair trying to look at your balanced portfolio thinking, well, what if there is a loss? No one's going to like me anymore.
1: Yes. So <laughs> what we are doing is still writing a degree of cat business, but outside of the US critical cat space. And the advantage of that strategy is that we can write a more diverse range of territories With lower peak aggregates, and basically, we don't need to buy reinsurance. Hence, the sort of economic decision I save myself a lot of money by buying something, paying X with a recovery rate of possibly 10% of X or 15% of X, which tells its own story. Whereas, with the ability to confidently assess the risk that we are retaining, and that's important, we can take a considered view that we can actually write these classes gross net.
0: As VJ Dowling would describe it, not to say diverse instead of diverse. Okay. He coined the phrase diversification. Presumably, those cat rates, ex peak zones, are actually doing okay. There was certainly a time, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when they really were relatively cheap and, and benefiting from that subsidy, that cross subsidy. Everyone wanted to write lots of Florida and whatever uh, because it was good business. But then, in order to achieve that, everyone else in non peak zones or European cat would get a big discount. You're feeling that that's not necessarily the case? Now, I think so much
1: intelligent discipline has been applied now. So of necessity, we've had to refine the North American, particularly US book. And that's through bitter experience, if you like. But through that experience, well, the key as ever in underwriting is to learn from your experience and remember those occasions and apply, well, if we can do that on the US book, then why aren't we doing it everywhere else? And I think there's been a lot of, you might say, cultural improvement right across the board. And that's why the international side is not the poor relation. It's not paying the staggeringly high rates online that you might be seeing in the southeast of the US or something like that. But then the risk of, of CAT is not nearly so great. But you've learned a hell of a lot more about the performance of certain occupancies and things like that,
0: and brought that all to bear as well. It's not as if we haven't had loss activity outside those peak zones. Europe, Australia, everywhere else. Well, we've had lost activity, but not yeah. as so massive. You, can't, no, you yeah. can't shoot the lights out in the way that um, Cat 5 yeah. hitting Miami can. No, true. But I
1: think what is a positive evolution of the whole, well, not Cat crisis, but because we're managing, it was probably a crisis a year ago because everything went at the end of 22 when Ida hit. And then suddenly everything we feared was, yes, the model's broken, if you like, sort of thing. We were really concerned at Monte Carlo and by Barden, Barden PCI. Boy, where's the market going to be? Hence the chaos of last year. Fast forward now, well, that's stabilized. But if you look now, particularly the impact of higher attachment points in the US, there have been any number of attritional cats in the course of this year, derechos and winter freeze and so on, which have had nominal. The Maui wildfires, for instance, is in its concentrated area, massive, but in its reinsurance impact, very modest indeed. And severe convective storms again. Well. Yeah. So you have those hugely... Localized intense events, but you've just got to be unlucky, if you like, if it hits your sort of Midwestern mutual in the way that it does. Particularly your
0: reinsurance is not really likely to respond now
1: that all the attachment points have well, reset absolutely. up. Absolutely. So you're certainly looking at a situation where the insurers are having to price in much more cap margin into their original business, particularly in the, the US. But when you look at what's been going on outside the US, and I mean, this year we've had Morocco heavily underinsured, Turkey, heavily underinsured, but significant impact, particularly human. Then you've got France and Italy, and then the floods in Germany two years ago, burnt, as it was called. Well, burnt. One online layers were getting hit uh, by a comparatively modest weather phenomenon, if you like. So that's prompting now, I think, a correction that we'll be seeing this 1st of January. The USA market has been corrected. The rest of the world market needs correcting.
0: We've had this interesting dynamic of insurance started to harden itself, reinsurance then added its weight to then reset attachment points, which have now prompted more hardening again on the insurance side because insurers are bearing more of these uh, higher frequency, slightly lower severity losses that previously, perhaps in the pre-reinsurance hardening, they might have been able to share quite a lot with their reinsurers. Do you think once that's done, once they get their house in order, then that was probably it for the hard market? (laughs)
1: Well, if it's it for the hard market, no, it can't go on. Nothing can go on forever. But at least the reset will be very constructive, simply because you will never see attachment points come down again. Notwithstanding, inflation may ebb somewhat, but we're still in a hefty inflationary environment. Labour costs are higher, material costs are higher, values at risk are growing materially. I mean, the inventory of property and. To insure is growing in real terms all the time. The reinstatement cost of that inventory is going up, and it's been referred to by reinsurers. You're still seeing, in effect, exponential growth in sums insured, and for that reason, the supply-demand
0: equation is still quite favourable, shall we say, to the seller. Albert Einstein was asked, "You know, what was greatest of man's inventions?" and he said, "Actually, it's compound interest." Not anything that he'd been studying. And I suppose once you, you have a bit of compound interest in, with inflation on inflation on inflation and rate, rate on rate on rate, and you can see how things uh, become exponential. And any compound factor,
1: particularly that valuation equation, is massively impactful on excess of loss because the impact to Excel is exponential. Because when something's grossing up on a stiff curve, of course, the retention stays the same and the relative impact is transferred much more readily upwards. But we know that.
0: Another emerging theme from Monte Carlo was a greater worry, or not to say not huge worry, but a bit more concern over casualty, which certainly hadn't manifested itself the previous year when we'd had the big hardening had been a, really a property phenomenon. And in fact, some reinsurers have been quite happy to perhaps jump towards casualty there as a, more of a displacement kind of activity to say, well, we'll get our income from somewhere else and we're going to diversify away from property. And then, yeah, we're happy to take a bit more casualty perhaps. And now... Yes, after years of inflation, there's a greater worry and perhaps a greater recognition that some of those back years were not as good. And you know, we've had more evidence of that. some of those back years. and Obviously, I think we've had this discussion before, but you, know, exactly, you can pick your year exactly your your time frame. that somewhere in the teens, a three or four or five, so, four-year I think year the market
1: period. is talking 16 to 19, 16 at the sort to 19 of 19 is probably the generic period of,
0: of this millennium. What's your view now? What, what's that going to translate into at 1-1, do you think? Well, definitely a requirement for improvement. I think if we just wind back a few
1: years, when US casualty prorata was kind of reborn and people suddenly realized there's a lot of improvement in the primary pricing, the seeding commissions are okay, the equation makes sense, so that even Lloyd's underwriters, who've hitherto been excess of loss people, became to a, quite an extent prorata people because they could. Ascertain the margins on pro rata were just as good as a risk excess or so forth.
0: Around that time, of course, I remember reporting as a journalist on, of course, a lot of those seeing commissions naturally because there was more capacity available started to go up. They were creeping up when we were reporting on those. So where
1: are we now? But I think going one step back, I think the greatest improvement across the market was experienced more in the FinPro space, less so the GL space. Sure, bigger ticket GL went up because the bigger insurers again, whose back years were not good and whose general results were not good, realised that, why are we offering $200 million lines? Let's just compress our risk profile and offer, say, 50 or so. So there was a natural, again, supply and demand order, and excess, you know, Fortune 1000, or whichever number you choose, but Fortune big ticket items went up considerably. But of course, the smaller to medium GL risk didn't necessarily rise to anything like the same extent. And it's that sort of smaller to midsize, big swathe of business, and I'm talking more bodily injury exposure, which of course is now, that's the tail that's wagging most. And that's where I think the market has been slightly caught napping, and there's sort of reasonably good reasons for that. I mean everyone in that space enjoyed what I think the market quite often refers to as the COVID holiday. Fewer miles driven, fewer hours worked, yeah. you know, low injury rates in factories because things were barely ticking over, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the liability market probably in some respects benefited more than the property market because there was less liability-creating activity, if you like, less risk taking place. Yeah. So that happens. So you have a lull in frequency. Then, of course, you have the closure in the courts. So you have a lull in legal process. Now we get back to normal levels or even enhanced levels post-COVID holiday of economic and just natural activity, and the courts have reopened. And everyone's assessment of certain years is perhaps been distorted by that because the development pattern both fre- of frequency of loss and legal process on loss has basically been sort of
0: messed up, quite simply. We're just naturally optimistic people. I suppose you have to be an optimist to be an underwriter, otherwise you would never underwrite anything. Well, as ever. But like investment, and the
1: classic sort of caveat is the past isn't necessarily a guide to the future. If you've been overly influenced by the more recent years, so the recent past is clearly not a guide to the future, probably in casualty. I mean, when reserving, you don't put too much store by the most recent years, but well, they're running well. But of course, that's been superficial. And there has been a reporting lag, a reporting lull. And all of that's coming through. And as ever, the US legal system is, to put it mildly, a capricious environment. And
0: it's very good at coming up, particularly from the juries, with some staggeringly high wars. Translating into a market next year of what should we be expecting? People going back to excess of loss who were proportional, for example.
1: Well, I think there's less proportional GL out there anyway. But I think the pricing of GL and bodily injury, so to a certain extent workers comp within a life, although a lot of the exposure there is medical expense. And that, of course, okay, that's gone up in cost terms, but that is still a sort of reasonably defined cost, if you like, or definable cost. But then if you look at excess trucking, I mean, people thought that excess trucking was looking good. And there's a bit of, hang on a minute, sort of feeling going on Because obviously that had
0: been a class that had been in the doghouse for many years and had been in remediation for a long time. A lot of
1: entities had lost their paper. Then you have the COVID lull. So yes, you've got improved terms, but the correction may have only been adequate for the somewhat lesser level
0: of activity at the time. And maybe you still need to go another step further. And one thing, I must remind myself to define GL is general liability, of course, and FINPRO are financial institutions. So
1: yes. So financial institutions, and professional indemnity. Um, DNO, and professional liability, professional indemnity, and also warranty, or transactional liability is more the generic term for yeah. warranty and indemnity these days.
0: So do you're going to say that the market's going to be a little harder for casualty as well coming up to this renewals? I'm not sure I want to put words in your mouth, but going to be reset again. Yeah.
1: Yes, it won't be the seismic reset that we've seen in property, but there is undoubtedly a requirement to get more money in and probably to adjust the attachment points as well.
0: In the context of that, what's been happening in DNO? Obviously, it's been variously described. Some quite strong language from many senior quarters. I think mean, the adjective was moronic. I think for some of the behaviour, is that the sort of canary in the coal mine for for the whole casualty market? Or is it just something very class specific going on with DNO, i.e., that we had a big hardening and then it just came off?
1: I think the DNO market is behaving very naively. I think the fact that people are coming into the market with such perceived alacrity is dodgy at the end of the day. If you look at certain areas within the DNO space, and if your high excess A-side DNO, which basically means you are only on the hook for financial failure of the yeah. said entity. That's when, when the then, company has to yeah, go bust at that point. Yes, that has run extremely well. But if you're seeing your rates halve, then if you halve your rates, then your volatility doubles, doesn't it? So at some if point, if you tripled time, your rate
0: and then you halve it, you're still one and a half times whatever you were before.
1: You're quite right, but there are no signs of abatement. And if you think that six months ago we actually thought there was a U.S. banking crisis just round the corner when certain companies were suddenly folding, you had, Absolutely, you know, yeah. and credit suites in Europe and things
0: like that. I mean, how short are memories? Very short. So you say it's naive, to say the least, and it's, do you think it's something that's going to find its base? Well, I think, yes, it's obviously for
1: incumbent re- insurers to be firm, like any leading underwriter so do you, do you, should I mean, be. Do you
0: think, presumably, as anyone who's still bullish, even though they've been knocking rates off in d when they come to renew their treaty, they're not going to be working with open arms, are they? one presumes.
1: Reinsurers should be applying serious pressure from behind because, of course, you know one of the key sort of rating factors is the original loss ratio period. Well, we're all used to getting increasingly sophisticated risk-adjusted rate change details. So, if your price has, in theory, gone down by 30% in risk-adjusted rate change terms, well, then do the maths. If the reinsurer wants to stand still, he should be applying a factor of 100 over 70 on the expiring book. Now, there's always... Other reasons for rate concessions. Maybe it was pegged too high to begin with, and so forth. But you can't condone that without some sort of reaction. Anyone in the DNO space will surely have their Cuo all over them. Whether they're an insurer, why are you conceding so much? Or a reinsurer, why are you putting that loss ratio pick on that excess of loss treaty when the cedent has basically undermined his own pricing?
0: So the wider context of Brit. I was looking at your third quarter results. And perhaps in contrast to other peers, gross numbers not actually going up, actually down. Does that make you an outlier of some description? Most people are growing at whatever, plus fifteen or something.
1: Yes, I think if there's a one word that would sort of encompass what we're doing at the moment, it's being responsible. We are one of the largest, potentially the largest syndicate in Lloyd's in twenty twenty four, as Beasley particularly exports to a lot of its income over to its ENS platform in the states but we have a large market share a large book so linear growth at a steady margin isn't achievable there's just a natural law about that you can't scale your business and i would think conversely once you have a large market share people tend to be sniping at your book so <laughs> in that respect i think we're just taking a cautious view i mean we'd love to be proved wrong on this and we should be a bit more optimistic by that, I mean, we might have more optimistic outcomes. I think we're just being very sober and level-headed.
0: You're certainly not gung-ho. You're not saying, foot to the floor, time to grow. But is it more that within that minor contraction that it is you're increasing the, how you perceive the quality of that? Oh, certainly, to just to say, well, I don't need to grow. I can just pick the best 85% of my portfolio and hang on to that, and then well, get rid of the 15% that I don't like.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, risk selection is everything insurance. What always defines a good underwriter is not whether that underwriter rated a book that was on average 10%, apparently, better price than his neighbor or his peer. What defines a good insurance underwriter are basically the losses that they didn't get, because that's what (laughs) improves your result. The loss you miss makes a massive difference to your numbers because you don't have to write another 100 good risks to pay for it. So it's all about better informed decisions, better
0: risk selection. Obviously, the other thing about that an underwriter, I suppose it's the thing that the underwriter doesn't know, because I mean, I'm a broker, obviously, so I've come from the broking side, that the, the one thing the underwriter doesn't know is the things they haven't been shown, because they just haven't been shown them. So they can't assess the risk that they're not being shown. And do you worry that because you, if a lot of your peers are foot to the floor, growing plus 15, plus 20, plus whatever, and you're more treading water or just you know being more selective, do you worry that you're not going to be shown those ones, those great risks that, yeah, the ones that won't have losses, those ones?
1: There's always a slight risk of that. But realistically, if you are active in your market and know your brokers and are visible in the market, which means getting back to the box, which underwriters are doing, then I don't think there's a great risk of that. There's so much portfolio analysis done by Industry sector, by profession, by whatever, you're going to see, hang on, why aren't I seeing any more architects or why aren't I seeing any more hotels, whatever it is, whatever class, you know what the natural mix of your book should look like or could look like. You'll be picking up quickly if for some reason some a, a right particular right segment is, yeah. seems to be moving away. Right. Let's talk more generally about
0: other things rather than just the market. But it's important that we'd spent quite a lot of time talking about the market because it's particularly interesting. Part of Brett, obviously, something you've been pioneering is the Key Syndicate, which is now, correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to get over a billion pounds of capacity probably in 2024. Am, am I getting right? Don't quote me on the number. No, well, I'll go and look it up and I'll put it in the notes, but do it properly. But the interesting thing about Key is that now it's matured to the point where it's now getting follow support from partners who are seeing the value that it's adding and said, well, rather than developing myself, I might as well partner along with Key and be alongside Key. Would you say that that's a point of maturation of that model? Obviously, something that was pioneering, which I'm sure, you know, when you first started, you think, well, you prepared for it to not work? And you're just saying now that is an absolute validation of it working and therefore a sign that it's going to be here to stay?
1: Well, I think the whole follow market approach is absolutely in transition in Lloyd's. You have the algorithmic model that we're pioneering with great success, certainly, in terms of the traction we've achieved. You've got the market tracker type approach as well. So there there are different iterations of this lead-follow mechanism. Ultimately, the whole plethora of consortia is to some extent another version. You have, in effect, a quota share insurance arrangement whereby you have a leader and then a high proportion of followers bolted on and so forth. So everyone is looking to improve their expense ratio, improve their distribution, improve their process and so forth. I think it will continue to evolve. For niche classes, the consortium route is, I think, a very effective one. In larger, more commoditizable classes, the sort of algorithmic approach that Key are adopting and the other sort of tracking approach other markets are adopting, they all have their merits and so forth. I think it has a particular advantage that it's creating or recreating relevance in Lloyd's whereby for individual risks, The automatic achievability of place capacity has been facilitated, and that's enabling Lloyd's, I think, to still more efficiently capture business. The one consequence of this process is it puts a degree of pressure Sort of intellectual pressure, moral pressure, even on the leader, because on the leader's decision hangs a whole lot of consequence. If you like,
0: as a broker of expending shoe leather around the market, you know sometimes even the third or fourth person on the slip might be quite very useful third opinion because they might actually point out something the leader had missed. Well, indeed, it's a bit annoying as a broker when they do that, but actually it was a useful check and balance.
1: Well, I think in the sort of older Lloyds, in the older London market, that sort of term of informed follower was a very respectable and a very valuable term. And it was real, if you like, that people followed certain leads, but they still had an opinion about the risk they were writing. And that opinion got fed back up. If you make automatic everything, to some extent, you remove the presence of the informed follower, because the capacity is automatically subscribed but you do expect your tools to be intelligent
0: do the to replace of being...
1: some of that, if you yeah, like. Yeah, to All be... of that, hopefully.
0: If there's a fat finger error from a major lead underwriter, Key should hopefully point it out and say, well, I'm not. Following that, Well,
1: hopefully its algorithm is it's sufficiently robust, something yes, because yes, if the nought's in the wrong place kind yeah. of thing, yeah. then straight away the algorithm is going to sort of spit back rather than sign Not up, all, immediately. Like. Yeah. Yes.
0: So, I suppose, yes, it could bring in interesting dynamics. But I what do you that- think would change? I mean, do you think we'll we have an element of this kind of fat finger error that will end up being like a big stock market where the whole thing gyrates?
1: Well, at the end of the day, if there's one error in a thousand, you can probably wear it, if you like, sort yeah. of thing because then you look at the other efficiency gains and the balance you can generate and so forth. I mean, you look at the balance sheet pros and cons, and there's still a lot of pros here in the model. But as I say, one of the cons is that sort of intellectual weakening. So how do you counter that? Well, anyone who signs up must really do their diligence thoroughly, because, yes, behavioral changes do happen in a sort of slightly automatic way and so forth. And for that reason, just because it works in this area doesn't mean that the model is instantly transportable into another part of the market.
0: I suppose theoretically, it should mean that as the market softens, the follow should just quietly bring itself back down to zero. Well, in theory... It, but obviously it depends on if you're sitting there dialing up the risk appetite as the market goes down because you want to keep the income up. Then I suppose that's up to you, isn't it? But if you leave the controls the same, it should be a good barometer of the marketplace.
1: Well, I think, ironically... The one thing human beings are very difficult at doing is having drawn a line in the sand is respecting that line <laughs> in the sand. I mean, whereas if you actually program the algorithm and the model or whatever correctly, then you have an absolute hard stop below which the market will not sink. And to some extent, in that ILS market for ILW pricing, once ILW pricing went below a certain level, that oh. the ILS people just put their pens down or the, the model put its pen down, shall we say you've got a better chance of putting a proper safety
0: net in pricing terms. And I suppose it's the classic apocryphal things about the market. We say, so, well, I'll send my underwriters off to the golf course. And I suppose it's a lot cheaper to send Key off to the golf course, even though I'm sure there's obviously there's going to be maintenance and things you'll have to pay to keep Key going and keep it ready for when the market hardens again. But at least it's cheaper than actually, you know, that is harder to fire a human underwriter or send them not metaphorically to this golf course that they never seem to actually... Well, ironically, I think to. in the
1: case of Key, The model will, shall we say, curb the income. And because you've got programmers and data scientists, you'll just be sent home to refine the model while you're waiting to write business, if you like. There is always a minimum cost
0: of this because you've got to maintain, you've got to keep that.
1: Indeed. And you just channel their intellectual ability into refinement and so forth and finding what does make sense, if you like.
0: We've been talking a lot about AI this year. It's almost as if we just discovered it. Of course, it's been around. And of course, someone who's a business that has been developing key would know all about it. As an underwriter of your stature and experience, how do you feel about AI? How far do you think we're going to take it? How much of your job is it likely to be doing? Or how much of the underwriter's job is likely to be done automatically? AI is
1: a challenge, obviously, because it's technological progress on steroids, because it's touching on human and philosophical aspects in a way that just technical digitization doesn't, if you like, or whatever. It's not just science. There's a kind of, yes, call it intrusive art to it as well. And some of that's quite of concern, if you like. But at the end of the day, it's with us. It's coming. So you can't pretend it's not there. So you've got to embrace it and manage it somehow. And looking at how can that improve underwriting? Certainly, I think in a lot of areas, in a classic area, such as, say, open market property, which is, to a certain extent, a commodity, but it's not such a commodity that it's not SME. It's a lot of single risk business that still needs thought. What we find is that underwriters are doing far too much mundane prep, if you like, before underwriting. So if you can refine the tools that triage those risks, then you are letting underwriters underwrite, add the value, add the selection process, and you use it as an ever increasingly sophisticated filter. Now, one day, it will learn enough to de facto replace the underwriter, but that's still, well, I'd like to think it's a way off.
0: it's much more of a, having a really smart assistant who's prepped everything and has gone through absolutely and flagged up bits.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's still a massive amount of time. There's so much double-keying that goes on in our industry, if you like, that needs to be removed. And then... There are certain risks that will always not be an appetite or a combination of certain risks. You know, I'll write that industry sector, but I'll underwrite it in the state of such and such, but not coastal and vice versa. Or this occupancy code works fine in Europe, but not in Asia or whatever. And the sort of filtering triaging tools that can just make all of that simpler. It means, yes, the role of juniors is going to be reduced. But then you'll have juniors training to be underwriters, not juniors doing mundane chores. But
0: it'll help them learn quicker as well.
1: Well, indeed, because they will only be seeing business that has a chance of working for you, which means... It's so much more motivating on business. They'll risks cut to the n- chase, if
0: sort of metaphorically, won't they? They'll, they'll only get straight to the, the ones that really require underwriting expertise and underwriting decision-making rather than the mundane ones, which don't add any value. Therefore, they won't waste any time doing the non-added value things, so they'll have a higher percentage of higher added value. So they'll become better underwriters quicker.
1: Well, I would say so, certainly, because at the end of the day, if you can filter out the dross, however you define dross, then if what you're working on, you have a better than average chance of success. It's so much more enriching and satisfying and so forth. Oh, absolutely. Well,
0: great, that's why I became a journalist, because you know you only do things that are newsworthy. Yeah. So you'd never do anything boring. I mean, why
1: churn <laughs> out a quote when your hit rate's one in 10? Then, you know, something's wrong. So make the hit rate one in two or one in three or whatever it you know, is. And then you still have a rich learning experience, but you also have a much more condensed learning experience.
0: When you're actually solving someone's problem, because clearly there's demand for that problem solving at that point. Something else that's happening in the technological sphere is, well, cyber as a class is maturing. And there's an, an interesting market development that it's being set up. It should be coming in, hopefully, for 1 1, something called the Cyber Monitoring Center. It's been described, I'm going to do a podcast on this actually with much more detail. So we're talking very general terms about it. But the idea is to have, for hurricanes, we've got the National Hurricane Center, for US hurricanes, we've got the National Hurricane Center, helping to define. What's the difference between a Cat 1 and a Cat 2 and a Cat 3 and a Cat 4 and a Cat 5? This would be to help define cyber events, systemic cyber events, to see into different categories and with the end goal of helping to mature the reinsurance market that we can all identify as being something that needs to happen, needs to be normalized. We need to get a proper cyber cat market going so that the cyber can continue to grow. We need to build that hierarchy, that cyber cat and the cyber retro and all the other things that we'll probably need as that business grows, because it's obviously been growing very fast, and perhaps there's a worry that it's going to grow so fast it'll hit capacity buffers at some point, or quite some time quite soon. Is that something you welcome? No, conceptually, absolutely. As you've alluded,
1: the natural order in any class of business is insurance, reinsurance, retrocession, certainly in non-proportional terms. And that requires a mutually agreed understanding of definition and scope of loss and quantification of that loss. And cyber is still on a learning curve in that respect. Undoubtedly, there is more event excess of loss cyber reinsurance being practiced today, the most that it's ever been, but it's still coming from a low base. And you haven't got that natural hierarchy yet of retro behind reinsurance, behind insurance, which is what props up the classic risk transfer market. So anything that can assist in quantification, improving. Certainty of what events are covered and so forth is highly welcome. It won't happen overnight. The ability to create in the cyber insurance space an organization of the statue of, say, Sigma or something like that, which can say, call it when it comes to an ILW. Well, that's a long way away, but
0: that's the direction we
1: need to be going in.
0: And I suppose we've had some ILS issuance as well. So you'd say it's all very encouraging. Well, I suppose in cyber, we just haven't had a big enough systemic loss and something will end up being litigated where those words in the policies will be scrutinised many years after the event, and we'll all have to understand what those words actually mean under the law.
1: But we live in a world of constant year misses because of what is flying around the ether and through our fibre connections or whatever. And at some point in time, a major insurance loss is going to land for which there isn't a quick patch that solves everything in the nick of time. And, and for that we, reason,
0: we know that those ILSs need to be there. We need to yeah. have a cap market there ready to pay. Because ILS ultimately is probably what props
1: up the retro market in a lot of space, in
0: mm-hmm. a lot of areas.
1: But that's because they've got a certain certainty of, yes, that loss is a one in X. But until you have a feel for what that loss could look like, which we don't have,
0: how can you even begin to put a number on it or a value on it? Oh, it's a good place to end in infinity somewhere. Simon, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hoped we would have a good conversation like this, where we'd start on something quite mundane about the market, and we'd end up talking about all sorts of things. And and I'm really glad that it has been that kind of conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't spoken about, or you think we've missed out? Uh, One thing I thought about, because I had the chance perhaps to
1: interject earlier, but missed it, the interest in casualty reinsurance, which has grown. I think a few words of caution, and this isn't me just trying to protect my own patch, but casualty is never easy. You never know, quite know where you are in the cycle because obviously casualty has a naturally slow burn when it comes to development. So it takes you a good few years to know that you were, instead of being 120% rate adequate, you might discover you're only 75% rate adequate. It's a long, slow gestation period there. And there are classes in casualty, and cyber is a casualty class as much as it is a, a pecuniary class. And the other one, of course, which is still emerging in natural experience, which is transactional liability. There's some big transactional liability losses out there at the moment. And I think the sort of perceived wisdom a few years ago was, well, if said transaction has survived three years of reporting accounts without a claim, then you're all right. Well, I'm seeing the tail wagging
0: past year three, shall we say. So we live and learn. And yeah, certainly there was a moment. Yes, it was very competitive. Everyone wanted to hire an M&A insurance team, didn't they? Because it was perceived as being shooting fish in a barrel type thing.
1: Well, both transactional liability and cyber, I think, have spawned any number of MGAs. And I think those areas are going to be increasingly challenged because cyber is not a slam dunk money spinner. And W and I is not a short tail class. Far from it.
0: Well, thanks. Those words of wisdom, I shall leave you, It just means we're going to have to have another podcast at some point in the future. So thank you so much for this, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.